behold the man. <coughs> the book of Hebrews, as each book is, is distinctly in itself unique. One verse describes the whole book. Take your Bible, turn to Hebrews 13. <coughs> the nature of the book is given to us in one verse. In Hebrews 13, and we're down in verse 22. After his amen, we have verse 22, Hebrews 13. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I don't know how long the letters you write are, this is 13 chapters and it was only a short, short letter. Packed into this letter, the writer is inspired to cover a short word of exhortation. So the whole book is a word of exhortation. Now we don't use that word very much. True? So we ask ourselves, what is exhortation? <laughs> What happens with exhortation? Because this whole book is... Uh, uh, right. <laughs> Didn't know I wasn't loud enough. You've picked up the first part, I think, anyway. All right. <laughs> what is a word of exhortation? Well, <laughs> the word of prophecy, a gift of prophecy, as described in the gifts of the Spirit and its operation, prophecy is for edification, building up, exhortation and comfort. So amongst the words of prophecy, there is exhortation. So what is exhortation? Well, on the day of Pentecost, he exhorted them. After he preached, he exhorted them. So what was he doing? Exhortation is a strong word. It is a word of encouragement, of seeking to make you progress, develop. And in, in this epistle, it is characterized by two words. And they are amazing because the writer of this epistle identifies himself with us. As you go through the book, you're repeatedly going to come to the words, let us. What's it mean? This writer is penning truth as he sets it before us. There is a strong drawing of encouragement. Let us. So the writer is taking us with him. And it is probably characteristic of this book that some of the strongest warnings are in the book. Tremendously powerful warnings are in the book. Warnings that when I first read the book I shook because I read of warnings that if what happened to someone who violated the Ten Commandments suffered the consequences, how much greater will be the punishment of those who neglect or ignore this so great salvation? Doesn't give an answer. Just says, think about it. 
You ignore this message of Christ. You ignore God speaking to you through His Son about the forgiveness of your sins and the issues of eternity and dwelling with Him forever and forgiveness and all that goes with it. You neglect it. You ignore it. This so great salvation. He that violated, crossed Moses' law, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Where did that occur? It occurred in Numbers 15. God had told Moses, gather all the people together. All. So every person heard the words. <laughs> and he said, the Sabbath day is a sign. I give it to you. It's a sign. Every sign has meaning and message. The meaning of Sabbath is rest. What is rest? Define for me rest. Now you come on the camp. Did you rest? <laughs> God, God is very specific. No work. Undivine the word no means not any. Are we clear? When did the Sabbath come into the world? Who was the Sabbath given to? The Sabbath came into the world to the nation of Israel. That's when the Sabbath was given. So when you come to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, the giving of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day. SDAs will tell you, see, goes back to creation on the seventh day and he rested. <coughs> That's when the institution of the Sabbath was for every nation of the world. Rubbish. You say, why do you say that? Because you have to go back to Exodus 16 and that's where God introduced the Sabbath to the world and he gave it to the nation of Israel. They'd been slaves in Egypt. They never knew rest. They'd been up to this point in the wilderness. How is God going to teach them the reality of resting in a finished work at Calvary, he introduces the Sabbath. How does he do it? <coughs> he made them hungry. He tested them. And the test was hungry. You brought us in the wilderness, you're going to kill us here with hunger? And God tested the nation of Israel. The God who performed the miraculous in Egypt judged the gods of Egypt, delivered the people with the blood of a Passover lamb and at midnight killed all the firstborn of beast and man in the land of Egypt. And at midnight the cry of Egypt went up because death had entered every household of the Egyptians. It was a terrible night. The destroying angel had gone through, but God had promised when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I will not let the destroying angel come into your house. Protected, untouched. The miraculous that took place for the delivering of Egypt out of bondage there. And for three days they went off into the wilderness till God brought them to an impossible situation. And there is the Red Sea. Looking back as evening comes, there is the dust of 600 chariots all the and all the chariots of Israel, 600 chosen chariots. So you can imagine in modern day terms, 600 tanks. Ah, 
Sorry. <laughs> That's old age. <laughs> you can imagine today 600 tanks because that's what we, we, Israel has faced in these kind of wars it's been in. And Bren Gun, someone mentioned Bren Gun carriers and this kind of thing. They're coming along. The whole dust, the whole army of Egypt is coming across the desert and they're locked into an impossible situation. There is no way out. The Red Sea is before him. There's no escape to the sides and the whole army is heading as the sun settles down. And they can see it and they know it. What does God do? He goes from the presence of Israel and goes behind them. He becomes darkness to the Egyptians. To them it's just like the night is setting in. That's it. But to the Israelites, they can see everything ahead of them. Their eyes are not looking back, by the way. Their eyes are looking ahead. Because God's presence went in front of them and became light to the Israelites. They saw everything. Tell me, has the gospel been as real as that to you? It's called the glorious gospel of the blessed God that shines into our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It shines in. What they saw in an earthly scene, the gospel calls you and I to see in a heavenly scene by a revelation by the gospel to our hearts. That when that happens and God shines into your heart and you accept the light, the darkness goes and you pass from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. It is a miracle. It is an action of God. It is not your action, but you have experienced the revelation of God by the Holy Spirit of the truth of the gospel in your heart and you grasp it as yours. And we mentioned this morning, text was written, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the right, the authority to be called sons of God. So Israel experienced all this and the warnings to them were immense. So they're in the desert. They've been tested several places till they get here and they're hungry. So what does God do? He says, in the morning, when you get up, there will be, across the ground, food. And in Psalms it says, man did eat angels' food. Right? Moses for 40 years had never seen this. No man had ever seen this. Jesus said, Moses didn't give you that bread from heaven. Who gave it? The God of heaven. That's who gave that bread. They said, manna, Hebrew, what is it? That's the name for it. What is it? We, we have never seen it. We don't know anything about it. How did it get here? And it was unique because God said to them, you will gather enough, gave the measure for the families. <coughs> and he says, when you bring it back, if you brought too much, <coughs> it'll be enough. If you brought too little, it'll be enough because they shared. And Moses, uh, Paul uses this in the, the, the issue of, <coughs> our monetary use, our gift, our giving. And so he's teaching them. So you're in the wilderness, never had it before, you're hungry, and God promises this, and it happens. But do you know what the natural man says? Here today, not tomorrow. We're in the wilderness, 
this is not natural, so we'll keep it. It mightn't be there tomorrow, let's take a chance. And it bred worms and stank before the next morning. And Moses said, how long before you obey God? What is God teaching them? Obedience, belief is obedience to God's word. You accept it as it stands. So what happened? Come six days, the elders come to Moses, they've gathered twice as much. And Moses said, that is right. God said, you gather twice as much. You cook it whatever way you like. You keep it because there will be none on the ground the next day, which is the seventh day, the Sabbath, six days. So what happens? They cooked it, they kept it. It did not breed worms and stank. Tell me, are you dealing with a God of the miraculous? Is that the God who guarantees to save you and me? Is he the God of the miraculous? So whatever my condition, however I come to Christ, can that God meet my need? You are asked to believe he can. That's the gospel. It's about him. Not about you and me. You will never enter heaven because of anything you've done. I can't. I will have only one song and I don't sing. I've got a crackly voice like a crow, all right? But when I get to heaven, we all who are his sing. And the words of the song are these. Unto him, that's the reason for my entry, unto him he loved me. What an entrance into heaven. You get there, unto him, you will sing, unto him, he loved me. He washed me from my sin in his own blood. That's why I'm here. There's nothing I have done. There's no boasting about any deed I have done. Whoever you are, Paul included, your boasting is about Christ. You will see him and then you will speak to him and glorify him forever because eternity has been purchased by his blood for you and me. That's the gospel. It's immense. So what happened on that seventh day? Some of them went out and looked for it on the seventh day and God got angry. How long before you obey me? Now listen, for 40 years, whatever their disobedience, whatever the rebellion, whatever they did, manna never failed. Never. The water did. They got thirsty. There were three twice Instance, but the manna never failed. Tell me, is God gracious? In spite of the rebellion, in spite of all, and you go through their trips through there, which are our examples, God continued faithfully for 40 years. What was he teaching them those 40 years? Six days you work, the seventh, no work. And so he gathered all Israel together and he said, the Sabbath is a sign, rest. Every sign has meaning, that Sabbath rest, and carries a message. What is the message of the Sabbath? Keep the day? No. I, the Lord, make you holy. 
You'll never make yourself holy. I cannot make myself holy. It takes a work of God to make you and me holy. Holy in God's sight means acceptable totally in the eyes of Him with whom we have to do to make holy. That's the message. So what is the message? He said, when he finishes that, he said, you must not light a fire on the Sabbath day. You must not light a fire. All Israel heard it. So what happens? A little while later in the wilderness, there is a man on the Sabbath day out in the wilderness. He's picking up a few sticks. That's all he's doing. And they saw him, Sabbath day. So they put him in hold, it says. They put him in a place where he couldn't get out. What do we do with him? All he's doing is pick up a few sticks. What do we do? God said, take him out of the camp and all Israel stone him to death. Say, uh-uh, I don't worship that God. That's too severe. No, it's our value system that's wrong. God's value system is no work. There's not one thing you will do that will save your soul. You must rest on what Christ has done. That is the rest for your soul. And they stoned him to death. Every violation, every disobedience, under the mouth of two or three witnesses, harvested the consequences of unbelief. God had spoken, that's it. God has spoken to us in His Son, that's it. See that you refuse not Him that speaks from heaven, is the final closing of the book of Hebrews. If they escape not who refused his voice on earth, how much more those who refuse when he speaks from heaven in his own son, speaks once, completes the work, cries out, it is finished. Why did God rest? Because there was no angel missing. There was no animal missing on earth. There was no star missing in heaven. Humankind was there present on the earth for the first time. It was complete, it was finished, and it was perfect, and God rested. And that same satisfaction must have been in the heart of Jesus when he cried out at the cross, It is finished! The work of creation was finished. Tell me, where are you? Because Christ has cried... It is finished. What? Your sin, my sin, has been put away by the sacrifice of himself. He offered himself without spot to God. He did as high priest. The offering is him. He offered himself without spot to God. Tell me, is God satisfied? If there's one thing being denied across the church today, it's called penal substitutionary death of Christ. And what I've just given to you is penal, penalty, substitution. He took your place and he died in your place. 
the consequences of your sin and my sin, he paid for, fully finished, complete. Otherwise, the Bible would not say, he put away sin. He didn't cover it. That's atonement. That's an Old Testament word. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a cost to the Father. That's his son. That's his son. I'm going to deal with it in the last message that we have. <coughs> the reality of what it cost the Father to carry out your and my salvation. It's his son, his beloved son, his only real son. That's who he deal, dealt with in your place and mine. When you get to heaven, I thought about it, <coughs> as we all do. You haven't got a leg here. You're missing a leg. You get to heaven, you'll have two. All right? You're blind here. What a, is it Francis Ridley Havoc or the... Huh? Fanny Crosby. She was blind. But I will know him. I will know him when I see him. She's blind here, but she wrote to him. I will see him. Did she understand? When you get there in glory, you are complete. There is only one in heaven and you and I will never forget because every time you see him in heaven, he bears the marks that remember how we got there. It is the risen Christ. Everyone who rises is perfect. But when he rose from the dead, he said, Behold my hands and my feet. It's I myself, handle me and see. Spirit hasn't got flesh and bones. What did he say to Thomas? Because Thomas had said, he wasn't there. Unless I can put my finger into the hole in his hand, plus my fist into his side, he said, I won't believe. And it's seven days later, same time, Jesus comes in, suddenly in their midst. He never spoke to anyone else on the record. All we find is he said, Thomas, didn't address anyone else. Peers in their midst, they're all there. He just says, Thomas, take your finger, put it in the hole of my hand. Take your hand, put it in the hole of my side. Be not faithless, but believing. He said, my Lord and my God. Tell me, is that how the gospel is meant to affect us? In the powerful preaching of the apostles in the New Testament, they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? Because this had taken place and all the apostles did was take the Old Testament and show he had fulfilled it all. That's it. That's the gospel. So we step into an amazing scene here. <coughs> Let us. So when you go through your Bible, <coughs> and I put up there uh, chapter 4, verse 1, 14 and 16 are the first let us in the book of Hebrews. So just to have a quick look at it, you're in Hebrews <coughs> 4 and you're down in verse 1. Please notice the wording and I've just illustrated a bit of truth to us from it and, um, and the writer argues in this chapter about the Sabbath. Chapter 4, verse 1, Hebrews. Therefore, since what has gone before, therefore, based on that, let us, <coughs> uh, 
since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, meaning we enter that rest. And he's very definite. There is a Sabbath rest to the people of God. He that has entered his rest ceases, stops from his own works just like God did from his. Meaning not one of your works are you trusting in. You cease from your own works. You enter rest. You are trusting in Christ and his workmanship. The ability Christ has to change you and me and make us like himself. What a salvation. It is immense. Why? Because you weren't worthy of it and neither was I. There was nothing in me, despite all the positive self-esteem messages you may have got, you are worthless in the sight of God. I am of no value in my sin. I can bring everything I do as a sinner is stained by my sin. So what have I got to have? I've got to have that sin dealt with. If you don't get that sin dealt with, you know what's going to happen in your life and constantly? You're going to have a conscience that says, you did this, you did this, you did this. And the devil is an expert in pointing your eyes at the things you have done and saying, you will never get to heaven. Not only what you've done, what about your thoughts? Every thought that you have had is stained by our sinfulness. It's self-centered. It's all about me. I'm the center of it. How things affect me. It's, uh, it was the essence of Lucifer's sin. He looked at himself. He took his eyes off his creator, looked at himself and said, I am beautiful. But it was God's light shining on him that made him beautiful. He had no beauty inherently in him. And neither have you and I. But God bypassed that angelic world. He came to us fallen world of creatures of dust to lift us into an eternal inheritance as sons of a father, born of God's spirit. Is the gospel what the world needs to hear? It is the only answer to the world of chaos which you and I are in today. The same message that they preached in the New Testament has never altered. It is the same today. Why? Because he is the same today as yesterday, and he will never change. And if there is one earthly nation of Jewish people today to whom that applies, I, <coughs> God and Jacob, because I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob, Jacob the deceiver, are not consumed. Tell me, has Israel got a history of rebellion, of deception, of following false gods, of doing all kinds of things? As a nation they have, and they still, for the majority, are doing it. We have them going through our place. They're heading off to India. They're heading off to Thailand to go and get the worship of the Eastern religions. They go into yoga. They go into all kinds of things for satisfaction because they have stepped aside from the one Messiah God has sent from heaven. 
But one day, they'll never be consumed. Whatever you hear from your earthly leaders, you will never consume the nation of Israel. He said, if you can, God's, God challenges, and he said, if you can order day and night my fixed ordinances, then this nation can cease to exist before me because of all they've done. And they've got a history. And Jesus detailed that history. He said to them in a parable, he said, the man planted the vineyard. He let it out. He set it all up with a wine press, with a wall, with a watchtower, everything. And he went off. And he was waiting for fruit from that vineyard. And he rented it out to tenants to look after it so he could have the fruit. And what did he do? He sent a servant, get me my fruit. What did they do? Ah, servant, stoned him to death. Sent another servant, they mistreated him. Sent another servant, they killed him. That's how they treated all the servants that were sent. Finally, the owner of this family said, I will send my son. They will reverence him. What did they say? Come, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus told that parable and he said, what will that owner of that vineyard do? And the crowd answered him. You read in the other one, the crowd answered him. They will, he will kill those wretches and deliver it to someone else. He said, have you never read the stone which the builders rejected has been made the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvellous in our eyes. Have you never read? Remember, this is the four days of testing before the Passover lamb is sacrificed and he is shown to be absolutely perfect as the lamb. And then he said words which I had to grapple with and I thought, wow, these are the words. On whom so... Uh, that stone will become a stone of stumbling. It's placed before you. It become a stone of stumbling. The cross is a stumbling word to the Jew. But that stone, when it falls on you, will grind you to powder. Where's that in your Bible? It's Nebuchadnezzar's vision. The stone came from heaven and the Gentile nations who have dealt with Israel so horribly and there are some amazing words of prophecy. These are from Habakkuk, from um, um, Joel. From As you have done, he's speaking to the nations, as you have done to my people, it will be done to you. He's a God of recompenses on whomsoever that stone falls, it will grind them to powder. What happened in Nebuchadnezzar's vision? What, Daniel, what Nebuchadnezzar saw, as Daniel described it, was a whole statue complete. That statue has a message. All of those nations listed there have oppressed the nation of Israel. Read Babylon. Read Medo-Persian. Read the, read the Greek. Read the Roman. They suffered. What about the last one yet to come? Same thing. But they're going to be ground to powder and that's why you have so many promises to Israel. Never again 
will there be a foreigner in Jerusalem like that. Never again. And you can list your never agains. Jerusalem will dwell secure on the earth and there will be a king in that city. He will reign in righteousness. Is Jesus coming back to this world? Yes, he is. Is it, where is he coming back to? Is he coming back to, uh, where are we? We are Australia. All right. <laughs> he has defined clearly his place. He's coming back to his own people for the sake of his own people. He is a Jew. He's of the tribe of Judah. And as you read through Zechariah and you deal with him, you find Judah finally who betrayed Judas is Judah. Judah betrayed Joseph, sold him for pieces of silver. Till finally God takes those who have so treated him and in his own wondrous grace uses them to finally establish the place of his feet. His feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. So we know where Jesus is coming back to stand on the earth and establish his kingdom. It is the Mount of Olives. Where he left from, he's coming back to. Because he left his own people, he's coming back for his own people. And the reason he comes back is they will be in the most desperate situation they have ever been in. Jerusalem will be taken, the women raped, the houses pillaged, they're starting to go off into captivity and evil has won in this world. And he will come. Tell me, is that how you see your Saviour? Is he going to do all this? Well, how much can he do for your soul and mine? Because Israel was taught by the manna, no work. It never changed the message. No work, no work, no work. All right, I'll leave that lot there. Better go on. <coughs> I've taken this as a uh, starting point. In the NIV, it is a strong statement. It's Hebrews 3.1. I put up there, if you've got an NIV, if you've uh, got a King James, I think it's just consider. You're in Hebrews 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, notice who he's addressing, and the NIV has, fix your thoughts. Tell me, do you have trouble fixing your thoughts? It wouldn't say it if we don't. Fix your thoughts. Why have you got to fix your thoughts? Well, I'll give you a story. This is a dream. I didn't have it. Another man had it. And he dreamt a dream called Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison. He's known as John Bunyan. His book, translated into Fijian, had the greatest effect after the gospel. Have any of you read Pilgrim's Progress? Because if you have, you can identify your own pathway there, if you're a Christian. It's there. What happens? Fix your thoughts. What's it mean? Thoughts stray. It's easy to stray from a path. Easy. 
It is called in his prayer, in his dream, by path meadow. There's a nice meadow there. Meadow means, you know, grass fields look good, right? And there's a path that leads up. The path you're supposed to be on is here. You see this path? It looks good. Let's take that path. You know where it leads? Doubting Castle. You take Bypath Meadow from the path you are called to go. You will be led astray. And the warnings of Scripture are strong about being led astray from the truth. Into Bypath Meadow and you'll enter Doubting Castle. And when you get into Doubting Castle, you will feel hopeless and helpless. And then he remembered he had a key. It's called promise. That promise, that key, inserted into the prison, unlocked the door. And he got out of Doubting Castle. Tell me, is Pilgrim's Progress reality in the lives of pilgrims? Yes, it is. We are constantly warned of Scripture about being led astray. I don't know whether you've had, we've had sheep, all right? And they're very foolish. <laughs> but have you ever noticed sheep when they, um, they're out going and something frightens them or they go off and you let them out and that the first one will jump. There's nothing there, he jumps. So every other sheep jumps. <laughs> you, you watch them? Why? Why? Because once one goes astray, when they follow, they do exactly the same thing as the one who went astray. Tell me, do we need a shepherd? Oh, desperately. And I'm glad he's a good shepherd, he's a great shepherd. And of all the shepherds, he's the chief shepherd worth listening to. So when we come to this question of being led astray, fix your thoughts. Fix. Now that is an effort. Fix your thoughts. Don't let them be drawn aside to be occupied with other things. Fix your thoughts where? On the apostle. That means he is the sent one. The Father sent the Son. Fix your thoughts. He was sent by his Father. But he's not just the Apostle. He is the High Priest of our profession. So when we came to the book of Hebrews and we were introduced, God spoke at sundry time different ways to the fathers by the prophets as addressed to the Hebrew nation as it exists. Spoke in these last days, in his Son. Then he describes the Son, and we have been through him as creator. We've looked at him as the revelation and the, the express image of his Father. <coughs> but the Bible says in the King James, and I noticed it was in one of the hymns there, it says, when he had by himself, when he had by himself purged our sins. That is the action only of a high priest in the Old Testament. No priest could go beyond the veil. One day in the year and that day alone could the high priest go in. When God introduced the day of atonement to the nation of Israel, it started with 
after Nadab and Abihu had perished before the Lord. After that. What's fresh in their memory? The day of the appointment for the priestly ministry, for this tabernacle, so they would understand there is access to worship God. Israel as a nation could understand a high priest, a tabernacle, a priesthood, and offerings. It was all there. So what happens? The day Aaron is consecrated, his sons are consecrated, that same day, Nadab and Abihu took golden censers, and they had right to their high priest's sons. They took incense, and they had right to. But they took fire, unauthorized fire. The fire they should have taken was on the altar and was what God kindled the altar with. This is man's fire. And they put it on, and fire came out from God's presence, left them in their clothes, but they were cinders inside their clothes. Their clothes were still there because Moses said, wrap them up in their clothes, carry them out. Aaron had four sons he lost to that day, the day of his consecration. And if you go down in that, I used to wonder, what is the seriousness of all this? And this is that. See, my father drank. My father was a drinker. I lived in a house where you saw the consequences of it. Down you go to that chapter, verse 9 and 10 of Leviticus 10, you will find a priest must not touch strong drink. Do you understand? Amen. That's Old Testament. Does the principle still apply? Why that? He must be able to discern between good and evil, clean and unclean. Does strong drink affect my mind? All right, <laughs> I'll just give you my own testimony. My father drank, and I determined as an unbeliever, as a young boy, I'll never touch strong drink because I saw the effects. I wasn't a Christian, but I decided that. Now, I never did. I went through university, and I went to the parties they had. They asked me to go. They could give me a glass of beer. They knew I wouldn't drink it. I didn't drink. All right? I never touched it. But we were in Sydney at an Italian assembly, teaching. And we were billeted in a home of an Italian who was a builder and had injury and he stayed at home, but he brewed his own wine. All right? <coughs> so the wife didn't drink, the kids didn't drink, but he drank and he drank quite a lot. All right? But they poured about that much into a glass. Margaret took a sip, screwed a mouse up, didn't like it, so the lady gave her something else. And I thought... Now, I have never touched it. I'm going to experiment. <laughs> so I took it. I downed the lot. I put it down. Ten minutes later, my head inside was moving. And I realized God wants clarity in thinking when I'm dealing with the principles of Scripture. Because if I am a priest unto God, and I am serving God, I need clarity of thinking. I must be able to discern between what is clean and what is unclean. I'm not talking about meat. They're just shadow, according to Colossians. I'm talking about the ability to identify 
what will harm me and what is good for me. And if I'm a priest unto God and my life is to be an example, I am going to set an example. My children are going to follow. If the police pull up you up at the side of the road, they're looking often for one thing. How much have you drunk? If it registers, and if it registers a little amount, leave your vehicle, go off, you're not taking it. Why? Your judgment is affected. Even our world knows that. How much more if I am involved in a work that desperately needs clarity, clarity of discernment, and we are, we must discern between good and evil. Why? You withdraw from evil and you cleave to what is good. You abstain from even the appearance of evil. Ours is a holy calling. So I began to learn. I thought, they lost, he lost his two sons. And when he did, God said to Israel, you will not come at all times into my presence. You will only come when I appoint it. It will be an appointed time and an appointed way. And you do anything wrong, you will die. Does the high priest have immense responsibility? He knew if he did anything wrong on the day of atonement, he would die. Now forget about the rope tied to the ankle and the bells stopping ringing and him being pulled out. Impossible. Now I know the teaching has spread all over the world. I meet it where I go. It was impossible. He did not wear those clothes on that day. On that day he took off his garments for glory and beauty which had the robe, the blue robe with the bells and the pomegranates round which made a sound every time he moved from out inside the holy place out into the, the uh, altar of burnt offering and that. Every time he moved the sound was there. That's true. But on this day, he put on all white linen. There was nothing on him that was not white linen. The girdle, band round the top, everything he had on was white linen. What is the message? You get it in the end book of the Bible, Revelation 19. The white linen is the righteousness of the saints. So God in this day is dealing with the issue of righteousness. This is a most important day for Israel. Do you know they can't do it now? They have no temple. They can't take two goats. They can't sacrifice. They can't do anything of that. So what do they do? Some of them get a chicken, throw it around like this, and you know, all kinds of things, trying to get rid of their sins and their names into the book of life. Talk about effort. How long before we give up our efforts and trust Christ? Isn't that a word to Israel? One day they will. Their eyes will be opened, they'll look on him whom they pierced and they'll weep for him, they'll mourn for him as though they'd lost a firstborn son. Every household apart, weeping for what they have done. Just like Joseph's brethren when they found out what they had done to Joseph. So when we come to this whole area here, fix your thoughts on Jesus. What is he? He is the high priest of your confession. You fix your thoughts on him. Now keep going down. 
I've, I've put this across so that we may realize the importance of the message of high priest. Every chapter from chapter 2 right through to chapter 10, chapter by chapter by chapter, the word high priest is always there, every chapter. So the issue and message of a high priest is very important in this book of Hebrews. <coughs> His work at the cross, when he by himself purged our sins, he put away, him, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does that verse tell you? He is both offering and high priest. In the Old Testament, it was an animal's blood and the high priest took it and did it with that. But when he offered, he was both offerer and offering. He offered himself. And how did he do it? What was he like? He was without spot. He had no sin. Tell me, what did he have on that cross? He had no sin, but what was laid on him? The iniquities, our iniquities were laid on him. So tell me, what did he do with them? When he had by himself purged our sins, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Is that where your sin has gone? Past, present, future? Every sin? Did God miss out one? No, he did not. When he offered himself, it was without spot to God. He had no sin. But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is the judgment for sin? Death. He tasted death for every man. That's the gospel, isn't it? Amen. You're going to a world of sinners. Is there an answer? Yes, a man sent from heaven, God in the flesh, on a cross, never sinned, took on himself willingly the sin of the world, but wrestled with it the night before. My God, let this cup pass from me. Not my will. Yours be done. And what happened? An angel from heaven came and strengthened him. Physically, he could not have gone on. Does he understand you and I in temptation? He has more understanding than any other person on earth when you and I are being tempted. Tempted means drawn away from something you know you should not be doing. Your conscience tells you, let alone the word of God. I remember there was a man accused of murder in Fiji. He was sent to St. Giles, which is the nut house. You know what they Psycho. All right. And they sent there and said, what do you think? They said, he's not a murderer. He sleeps like a baby. His conscience does not trouble him. He did not do the murder. It's proven he didn't. Having done things in your life, your conscience troubles you. Particularly when you think I'm going to appear before someone who knows everything about me, sees everything I've ever done, and it's all written in a book. He's not missed one thing. Wow, what's on that book? Thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. It 
it purges away, it purified, it removed. If the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean on earth, sanctified them outwardly, made them holy outwardly, if that's what that did, how much more in far greater measure will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works. Dead works are accusing works. Works you have done. Things that from the past. And Satan is an artist. Because I read of Martin Luther. It's recorded. All right, There's an ink mark on the wall in the room where he was uh, locked up for his own safety because they wanted to kill him. The outsiders wanted to kill him, but his own people had locked him here away for his own safety. And it was Melanchthon, his friend, who wrote in a letter uh, <coughs> telling what that ink mark meant. Uh, he, he talked with uh, Luther. And Luther had got to an end of himself and Satan came to him and he said, you did this. And he began to bring up Luther's past, the things he had done. And they were true. And he had one thing after another. Luther said, you got any more? Yeah, more to come up. Finally he said, any more? No, finished. Well, he said, right across the lot, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. Did he understand the nature of the offering of Christ? Yes, he did. He put away sin, Luther's sin. What about yours? What about mine? I've got a past and I'll guarantee you have too. There's not one person sitting here that hasn't got a past. We all have. And I can remember the conscience and I still get twinges of conscience now. Did you realise that? I can remember things. I'm, How did I ever do that? You know? But what's the truth? The truth is that God took all your sin, put it on his own son, and that son paid the penalty, which was death, under the hand of a holy father. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is the father's will to bring many sons to glory? He had to do it. The son had to go through it. Otherwise, you and I would not have an eternity assured forever in the presence of a holy God who cannot look on sin. The Bible says in Habakkuk, he said, purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He can't look on sin. You're going to have to enter heaven perfect, pure, without spot. In your own works and everything, whatever anyone else does to you, will never allow you into heaven. You must have Christ as your salvation. His blood must purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You realise what that is? Because you can't serve a living God with a guilty conscience. You feel inadequate. He won't accept me. He won't hear me. Have you ever felt like that in praying? I have. He won't hear me. What about what you did here? He purges the conscience from dead works, removes the guilt of the conscience. 
if ashes of an heifer and the blood of an animal and that outwardly sanctifies, makes holy the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience? Tell me, has that happened to you? Because if you're a believer, that's the work of God in you. He purges the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Tell me, does he have to repeat it? Does he have to keep doing it again? Once for all is repeated repeatedly in the book of Hebrews. He did it once for all. Does that include me? Yes. How many times? Once. Why? He finished the work. That's why. We are called to believe in a God who saves by the biblical account. He put away sin. Yours, mine, the sin of this world. He took it away. Nailed it to his cross. It's out of the way. What a salvation. He's high priest. He offered himself. Keep going. <coughs> I'm going to deal a little bit with this. He's a... <coughs> I put in a comment at the bottom, he's the right hand of majesty on high. In God's perfect wisdom, his knowledge and his understanding of all things, only one man could fulfill that. This is Old Testament, all right? You, you recognize I'm back in the Old Testament? You're in Genesis 49, turn to it in your Bible. If you've got your Bible there, I put up one, Genesis 49 verse 10, which is Jacob's words <coughs> to Judah. And I've chosen out one verse of it particularly for comment. Genesis 49, verse 10. When we read here, what's the time? Okay, thanks. <laughs> Help me, it's suitable. 49.10, this is words. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes to whom it belongs. Interesting words. And if you've got a King James, till Shiloh come. Shiloh means rest. That's what Shiloh means. This one who gives rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, uh, and you will find rest for your soul. <coughs> till he comes. And the obedience of the nations is his. Tell me, is that a... A, a prophetic word concerning the tribe of Judah? What is so important about the tribe of Judah? Because they have a covenant made with one of their kings. And God made a covenant with David. And he told him, I will raise up from your seed, your descendants, one who will sit on your throne. He'll be my firstborn son, meaning he has rights and responsibilities. <coughs> Sit him up on your throne. His kingdom will never end. So there's an immensity about Judah and the covenant with David. And it's repeated, and you'll notice in Psalm 132, it's repeated in the book of Isaiah, this, this, uh, the, these mercies of God to David. And even when David was dying, and I love the words of people who are dying, particularly if they're good men. Even Balaam said, 
Oh, that my latter end might be like theirs. And it wasn't. When David was dying, these are the last words of David. He said, He that rules among men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And his kingdom will be like the sun shining after the rain and all this. And the King James has, Though my house is not so with the Lord. The King James to me is more accurate. NIV changes the sense. The strongest sense is, Though my house is not like this with the Lord. What is in David's mind? He's lost four sons, hasn't he? He's committed murder. He's committed adultery. The consequences have been in his own family. He's just listed about he who reigns, must reign in righteousness, and his kingdom will be like this. Though my house is not so with God, yet in spite of this, He has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and sure, this is all my hope and this is all my salvation. That's how he went out of this world. That's the last words of David in 2 Samuel 23. Amazing words, aren't they? David had a memory. You've got a memory. David had a memory of two terrible things done. Terrible. And he suffered the consequences of his own family, the unrest and all that went on, the suffering in that family due to his actions. And yet, when he comes to die, where's his eyes? On Christ the covenant maker. That's where they are. Even though my house is not so like this with the Lord, yet he has made an everlasting covenant with me. And in the Isaiah it says, called the sure mercies of David. Why? Because God has mercy. He knew the mercy of God. So when we come to this area here, we are stepping in an immense area. Is there a king? Who should have a king? Now, this is the king. The scepter will not depart from Judah. David has not yet risen. He's not even in this world. You're still back with Jacob. The promise is there till Shiloh come. To him the gathering of the people will be. So you go on in your Old Testament. You come to the man called Balaam. He's an interesting character. Is Balaam. He wasn't a Jew. He come from another nation. But he's an interesting character because he is known with power. Whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. I can hear the lips of Jesus, or God, back in the Old Testament speaking to Abraham (coughs) about whoever curses you will be cursed, whoever blesses you will be blessed. That's God speaking. Now you have Balaam, and Balak, the king of Moab, sends to him because he said, I know those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. So he's a powerful man. So you remember the story? Balaam could not go. God told him, you're not to go. You cannot bless, curse these people. And so they went off and they brought back more rewards because he didn't come. And this is called <coughs> Balaam's error. If you're reading the book of Jude, it's called Balaam's error. God never changes his mind. He went back into the presence of God and God said, go with them. God had told him, you don't go. You don't curse this people. And he went. Remember? (coughs) Remember what happened to him? The only place where we have 
Uh, a donkey speaking. Right. A female donkey, an ass. Right. We seem to blame the females all the time, don't we? <laughs> but Balaam has some, uh, because he spoke under the Spirit of God. He did not want to say, he wanted the money. He desperately wanted that money, wages of unrighteousness. But he said things that are remarkable. And I put the references on your text there. You're in Numbers 23. <coughs> and these are the words of, from Balaam's lips. Numbers 23, and we're down in verse, I gave you verse 19 to 23. We have some of the words which we often hear. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Remember, this is a false prophet speaking. He wanted money, but he's speaking the truth because he can't say anything else. Does he promise? Has it, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. So he's speaking under the Spirit of God. He's not speaking his own thoughts. But he says, and if you've got a King James, I think it says, no iniquity is in Israel. What? Look at them. They're standing at the edge of the promised land. They've been 40 years in the wilderness. No iniquity? Look what they did. They made a golden calf. Right? All the things they did. God says, I see no iniquity. Wow. How can that be possible? The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. Was it? Was the king among them? You know what Samuel got grieved at? The nation asked Samuel, give us a king. We want to be like the nations. And Samuel was grieved and God said to him, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me as their king. The one you cannot see was king over Israel. They couldn't see him. There was no image of him. There was nothing to represent him. An object of worship? No. He said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. The shout of a king is among them. That's how the prophecy goes for this nation. Then it goes on. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There's no sorcery against Jacob. No divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. Is that prophetic? Going to be, see what God has done for this nation who is in covenant relationship with God from Mount Sinai. They're going to come into a covenant relationship with God and the law will be written in their hearts. It will be put in their mind. They will not teach each other saying, know the Lord. Every man will know me from the least to the greatest. They will all know me. Why? I'll be merciful. I will forgive their iniquity. Put away their sin. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is 
no more offering for sin. Tell me, for Israel, with all their deeds, is Christ's death at the cross sufficient to forgive that nation? Amen. Think of what they've done. They've killed his son. They've killed his son. What an action. Total rejection, hatred, murder. How they treated that son when they sent him. Can God forgive? Seventy times seven is the time given to the nation of Israel in Daniel 9. And when that 70 times seven finishes, God will have finished his dealings with the nation of Israel. That lies in the future. But assuredly as you and I are sitting here, what you have experienced as a believer, that means the cleansing of your conscience from all its accusations. Israel is going to experience. A fountain will be opened for sin and uncleanness. This is how the King James has it in Zechariah 13. A fountain for sin and uncleanness. You know where that comes from? Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. It will be fulfilled by Christ. He offered himself back there, but they have not received what he did. One day their eyes are going to be opened. The veil will go. And they'll look on him whom they pierced. And national mourning will take place in the nation of Israel. That has yet to come. They are only a reflection of what God does in every individual he brings to himself. Conscious of my sin, conscious of accusing conscience, I have understood the work of Christ and accepted that work because he then becomes your saviour. You can add nothing to what he's done. It's finished. Churches want to add things. They want to add water baptism. They want to add speaking in tongues. They want to add all kinds of things. But the Bible says it is a finished work. It's finished. You must trust him. That is his salvation. Five minutes, all right. I will finish with these thoughts. <coughs> when you turn to your New Testament, he was on trial. Christ was on trial before Pilate. All right. And before Pilate, the priests did not come in. They, Pilate came out to them. It was the Passover, the holy day is the next day. And the Passover is to be sacrificed and they would not defile themselves by going in. So Pilate came out from the judgment hall, met them. What charge do you bring against this man? And they said, we wouldn't have brought a, a, him to you if we, you know, but we can't kill him. So <coughs> Pilate goes in to examine the man. And as he examines him, twice in John, it says, I find no fault in him. Then again, I find no, it goes out, I find no fault in the man. <coughs> and then it says, as he's on the judge, he goes in in the judgment seat, he sits there, and a letter comes from his wife. And the letter says, have nothing to do with this just man. I have suffered much in a dream this day because of him. That's the letter he got from his wife. <coughs> 
And Pilate went out and he was the more afraid. Remember what you heard in that song. I used to wonder, even Pilate shook before him. I thought, how did you get that? Why did you write that in the hymn there? You read your Bible carefully. Pilate was afraid. Are you a king then? You know, and he questioned him. Are you the son of God? Question him. But then he gets a letter from his wife. Don't you have anything to do with this just man? He was already troubled. I find no fault with him. I'll release Barabbas. I'll release one to you. It's the day, you know. I'll release him to you. No, not this man. Barabbas, give us the son of the father, the devil. Barabbas, bar son of Abbas the father. He's a murderer involved in an uprising. He's committed crimes. Give give him to us. Don't release this man. He goes into the judgment. As he sits down to make judgment, the letter is there from his wife. Don't you have anything to do with this just man? Now, we don't know what she saw in her dream. It never tells us. But it was sufficient for her to write, and God had it right on time. He's just sat down on the judgment seat and he reads the letter from his wife. What are you going to do? He went out, he washed his hands. His blood, I wash my hands of. He's an innocent man. And then the terrible cry from the nation before him, his blood be on us and on our children. Terrible, terrible cry, not realizing who he was, their Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Rejected, spurned, and finally put to death. Can God forgive people like that? Can God forgive crimes like that? National crimes, crimes that a nation has done and suffered for 2,000 years. Can God forgive? 70 times, 7 Peter, not 7 times. I forgive 70 times 7. Jesus is literally saying to Peter, go read it, Peter, Daniel 9. They're going to be forgiven. You must forgive as I forgive. How much has been done against you? How much has been done against me? How much have you done against another person? Can it be forgiven? Do we forgive like God forgives? That's what God has called us to. Holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest whom we confess. We used to sing a chorus, we still do, I think, in Fiji. Oh, to be like the blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. You ever heard it? No one heard it? There's quite quite amazing choruses sung overseas. A lot of them are their own composing, and they stick. They stick with you when you hear them. 
I won't sing it. (laughs) I have left you just with a small measure of what is in this book, because I'm going to leave this here. My last one I want to cover thoroughly, clearly, so I leave you with a clear foundation of understanding (coughs) which God has done most remarkably through the whole of Scripture. So I'm going to finish with Hebrews there as far as you can see it now. I trust your eyes are fixed on Jesus. That is the whole object of the book of Hebrews. It is meant to be what our eyes are focused on. I detect very easily the shift that can take place in us as individuals. We lose our focus of Jesus. We lose our our, our wonder of who he is and the salvation he's brought, and we're taken up by other issues. You are led astray. Don't end up in Doubting Castle. You don't have to. Why? <coughs> All the way through the Bible, you have turning to the right hand to the left. Every major doctrine there is in the Scripture has that about it. Don't turn to the right hand to the left. In Isaiah it says, when you turn to the right hand or to the left, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. The Holy Spirit is faithful. He will direct you by his word. It will confirm the path you are meant to go and it is a biblical path. Don't be led astray and end up in Doubting Castle. I think there are safeguards before we get there. (laughs) Thank you very much.